Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look at history's most notorious crimes and killers. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 9 and we've got a really interesting story to tell and one that quite a few of you may have already heard before. We'll be diving into the life and the crimes of Delphine LaLaurie. The year is 1834, and a fire breaks out at a mansion on 11440 Royal Street in the New Orleans French Quarter. Neighbors rush to help put out the fire, but oddly notice that the lady of the house, Madame LaLaurie, was all alone. This would have been extremely odd for the time period, a wealthy woman all alone in her home. LaLaurie owned a lot of slaves, so where were they? While the house was searched and what was discovered inside would forever alter her identity. Madame Marie Delphine LaLaurie, respected member of society, would become known as the Savage Mistress of New Orleans. So who was Delphine LaLaurie? Well, she was born Marie Delphine McCarthy, or McCarty, depending on the source, and was born anywhere between 1775 to 1787. Uh, the records here do differ uh, quite substantially, but she was born in New Orleans during the Spanish colonial period. Born into a wealthy family, uh, her ancestors would have been landowners, planters, merchants, military and government officials, and just generally affluent people. Her father, Louis, uh, was knighted as a chevalier of the Royal and Military of St. Louis, and her mother, Marie, uh, was renowned for organizing spectacular parties that went on all night. Her parents were both prominent members of the European Creole community in New Orleans. And now Delphine would marry very young. In fact, she was married for the first time when she was only 14 years old. And at the time of their wedding, uh, her husband-to-be, Ramon, was a 35-year-old widow. Now, he was a Spanish crown officer and governor of Louisiana's second-in-command. Ramon and Delphine were married in a private ceremony on June 11th of 1800. There are a lot of different stories about what happens next, but one theory is that somewhere off the coast of Havana on January 11th of 1805, Ramon's ship hits a sandbar and he's killed, leaving Delphine, his pregnant wife, behind. Now, whether the ship hits a sandbar or something else happens is up for debate, but what we do know is that he does pass away. And soon after, Delphine will give birth to her first child, who she names in part after Ramon's late wife, Marie Define Francisca Borgia Lopez Yangido de la Candelaria. And I have no idea if I said that correctly, so apologies if I mispronounced any of those names. But Delphine only stays in Havana long enough to have her daughter christened and to put her husband to rest. When she returns to New Orleans, she discovers it's no longer governed by the French or the Spanish, but by the United States. Delphine's now a widow, but still very young. So she remarries fairly quickly, and she's going to marry an older, also widowed, widowed, I don't know why I have such a hard time saying that uh, that word, widowed Frenchman named Jean-Paul Blanc on her 20th birthday, March 19th, 1807. 
He's thought to have viewed the marriage more as a business and a financial opportunity, definitely not a love match. Uh, And he looks at Delphine that way because she had received uh, an inheritance from her mother's passing. And it was a fairly sizable fortune for the time, estimated to be about $33,000. And she also inherited a property along with the money. And so Blanc, a cunning businessman who had a reputation for engaging in less than moral behavior, viewed Delphine as a perfect opportunity. Side note, he also associated with the infamous pirate brothers of Jean and Pierre Lafitte. So, you know, he didn't keep the greatest of company. During their marriage, they would buy a two-story townhouse and have five children, including the first child from her uh, first late husband. It's well known that the family divided their time between their plantation and their townhouse. Blanc will die about 10 years after they were married, around the age of 50, and he leaves his estate to Delphine. And you'd think this would be a good thing, but... That estate was mostly just debts, totaling what would be more than $2.5 million today. Delphine had to give up all of their mutual properties and assets to the court, and for the next 10 years, she's going to attempt to simply just pay off that debt. But Delphine's fortunes will turn again when her father passes away in 1824 and again leaves her a sizable inheritance. Delphine will also go on to meet her third husband in a little bit of an unusual way because Dr. Louis Lelori arrives from France in 1825 as a chiropractor, and the two actually meet when one of Delphine's children has to go in for an appointment. Scandalously, Delphine falls pregnant before the two are officially married, uh, but they do eventually get married except it won't be a happy one. Uh, They often fought and they would frequently separate. In 1831, Delphine will purchase uh, two vacant lots on Royal and Hospital, and this would become what we now know today as the infamous LaLaurie Mansion. Delphine also petitions the court for a separation from her husband, uh, actually technically from her husband's bed and board on November 16, 1832, claiming he had treated her terribly and had even beaten her once, making their living arrangements intolerable. So Delphine's marriage was not harmonious and turns out nothing in her household was. However, surprisingly, there are a few conflicting tales of how Delphine actually treated her slaves. Many New Orleans citizens claim in writings from around 1838 that the LaLaurie slaves were haggard and pitiful, although LaLaurie herself was frequently depicted as being generally kind to them and concerned for her slaves' health. Whatever the case, it's very clear that the LaLaurie mansion was full of secrets. At one point, a lawyer is sent to the home when word of Delphine's alleged mistreatment of her slaves traveled around town. Unfortunately, he was not able to locate any proof of abuse. However, this did not stop rumors about her brutal character from spreading throughout the town. There were established rules and laws to prohibit severe physical brutality toward the men and women who were owned by enslavers, even if it was customary for the time for slaves to be physically disciplined. The law in Louisiana stated the slave is entirely subject to the will of his master, who may correct and chastise him, though not with unusual rigor, nor to maim or mutilate or cause his death. 
The Lori residents received notices from court authorities on at least two additional times about the need to maintain certain standards in regards to their treatment of their slaves. Now, according to Patty Wigington for ThoughtCo.com, Delphi's contemporary Harriet Martineau, a British social theorist, wrote in 1836 about Delphine's alleged hypocrisy. Apparently, a neighbor witnessed a young child flying across the yard towards the house and Madame Lalaurie pursuing her, cowhide in hand, until they reached the roof. Martineau said she heard the fall and saw the child taken up, her body bending and limbs hanging as if every bone were broken. At night, she saw the body brought out, a shallow hole dug by torchlight, and the body covered over. So what we know is the child falls off the roof, dies, and is buried in the backyard by Delphine. And following this occurrence, an investigation was conducted, and Delphine was accused of showing unusual brutality. From her home, as a consequence, nine slaves are taken away, and she was fined around $300. Now, Delphine was able to return all of her slaves back to her home by using her connections uh, that her family had. Her brutality didn't just extend to her slaves, it also uh, extended to her family, because there are claims that she would beat at least two of her children, especially when they tried to be kind uh, to the slaves in the home. And according to legendsofamerica.com, there were uh, deaths of 12 slaves at the residence between 1830 and 1834 that have been recorded in funeral registers. However, the causes of death are not listed. Among those who died were Vaughn, a chef and laundress, and her four children. Additionally, according to court documents, LaLaurie did emancipate two of her slaves, Jean-Louis in 1819 and DeVince in 1832. But it wouldn't be until April 10th of 1834 that the truth would finally be revealed. The mansion catches fire and the police and fire marshals discover the chef, a 70-year-old woman, chained around her ankle to the stove. It's later discovered that she intentionally sets the fire to avoid further punishment from Delphine. And now is when the other shoe's going to drop. There had been rumors for years that Delphine had mistreated her slaves, but no one could prove anything. While the following day after the fire, several onlookers uh, make attempts to enter the slave quarters to make sure everyone had escaped. They had to force open the entrance because they were denied entry. What they find is seven slaves imprisoned in the room. And those slaves, unfortunately, were found filled with scars and disfigurements. When word gets out about what was found at the mansion, a mob attacks. They managed to cause serious damage before the police could disperse them. According to an article on Murderpedia.org, uh, Judge Jean-Francois Chanoz was one of those who entered uh, the home, and he was later deposed. And what he says about what he discovered is this. An old Negro woman with a very serious wound on her head who was too feeble to be able to move, and a Negress wearing an iron collar. He reported that when he spoke to Delphine's husband, he was rudely informed that, quote, some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to dictate laws and meddle with other people's business. So it doesn't sound like there was uh, much remorse from him. And the next day, a newspaper, the New Orleans Bee, writes this. 
Upon entering one of the apartments, the most appalling spectacle met their eyes. Seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, were seen suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. These slaves were the property of the demon, in the shape of a woman. They had been confined by her for several months in the situation from which they had thus provincially been rescued, and had been merely kept in existence to prolong their suffering and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict. And that paints such a disturbing picture. And unfortunately for the slaves that were found in the home, uh, they had to endure further humiliation because following the fire, the slaves were taken to the local jail where horrifically they're put on display for public viewing. Up to 4,000 people reportedly show up by April 12th to see the tormented captives in order to quote, convince themselves of their sufferings. And that's according, again, to the New Orleans Bee. Maybe it's something like they needed to see it to believe it. But how devastating that these people who were chained and tortured had to then endure becoming a public spectacle. And in fact, two of the rescued slaves did die from their injuries. In addition, the backyard of the LaLaurie mansion was dug up and the dead were removed from their graves. Reports here differ on how many people were buried in the yard, although we do know one was the child who had fallen from the roof. The precise number of victims Delphine killed is unknown. Over the course of her life, we know she did own at least 54 slaves, but many of whom we'll simply never know what happened to. According to some sources, one loyal servant or slave did remain because in the middle of the chaos, Delphine's coachman helped her escape and took her to a ship at the docks. And what happened after she left New Orleans is unclear, but there are several rumors. According to American poet William Cullen Bryant's journal, Delphine was in Mobile before traveling to New York. Later, Delphine and her husband Louis are thought to have traveled to Paris, France, Louis eventually leaves Delphine and moves to Havana, leaving her in Paris. Her children are said uh, to have frequently visited their mother, and they all eventually did move to Paris to be close by. According to letters from her son, it is thought that she intended to go back to New Orleans, but her family opposed this. Delphine, Louis, any member of their family never faced justice for their crimes, and Delphine dies on December 7, 1849 in Paris. The details around her passing, though, still remain a mystery, although letters between her children suggest that some sort of lingering illness could have been the cause. Later on, a tombstone in New Orleans St. Louis Cemetery 1 bears a plate that reads, Madame LaLaurie, ni Marie Delphine McCarthy, décidé à Paris le 7th of September 1842. You can see my high school French skills slightly coming into play there. Half English, half French. Uh, but this indicated that she actually passed away seven years earlier than the French archives would have it. So the date of her death and the way she passed, we just don't know the details enough to confirm the truth. Delphine, like many other infamous criminals, continues to live on in stories and media. 
During the 19th century, legends of Delphine's mistreatment of her slaves spread throughout Louisiana, and they were later reproduced in story collections by Henry Castellanos and George Washington Cable. The account by Cable, not to be confused with his unrelated 1881 book, Madame Delphine, was inspired by the events reported in publications like the New Orleans Bee and the Advertiser, as well as Martineau's 1838 account, Retrospect of Western Travel. However, Cable did add his own commentary and supposition throughout the story. After 1945, stories of Delphine's slaves grow even more graphic. In her book, Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans in 1946, Jean Delavine claimed that Delphine had a, quote, sadistic appetite that seemed never appeased until she had afflicted on one or more of her black servitors some hideous form of torture and that those who responded to the 1834 fire had discovered, quote, male slaves, stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots, others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together, intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waist. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. Obviously a much more graphic and detailed account than previously reported, but these claims of Delavine were unsubstantiated by any primary source, and Delavine herself did not mention any sources at all. So it's hard to say if any of this has any basis in fact. In 1998, we get another book. So in her book, Journey into Darkness, Ghosts and Vampires of New Orleans, Kalila Katarina Smith, the owner of a New Orleans ghost tour company, further popularizes and exaggerates the tale. According to Smith's book, the victims discovered by rescuers during the 1834 fire included Quote, victim who obviously had her arms amputated and her skin peeled off in a circular pattern, making her look like a human caterpillar, and another who had her limbs broken and reset at odd angles so she resembled a human crab. Again, none of this is uh, corroborated information by any actual source material. So the story, like many crimes that happened over 100 years ago, is a lot of fact mixed with a lot of fiction. Some of you might be wondering, well, whatever happened to the LaLaurie mansion? Good question, because after the LaLauries left America, the house remains in ruins until around 1838 when it was purchased by Charles Caffin and rebuilt uh, by a man named Pierre Tresor in the Empire style. It was described as the highest building for squares around in 1928 because of the addition of a third floor and a back building in the 19th century. In the decades after it was restored, it's been used as a school, an apartment complex, a boy's home, and even a furniture store over the years. But the LaLaurie Mansion is currently one of New Orleans' most well-known tourist destinations. The home was actually purchased by actor Nicolas Cage in 2007 for around $3.45 million. 
However, he supposedly never even lived there because two years later, Cage loses the home due to foreclosure procedures. Today, the home is frequently visited by tourists who are only able to see it from the outside. It's now a private household and no one can visit uh, inside the home. Numerous novels and television programs about ghost adventures have also mentioned the LaLaurie Mansion and its history. And Kathy Bates even portrayed a fictional version of Delphine in American Horror Story Coven. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, and if you have, please remember to rate, review, or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can email us at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod. We'll see you next week for another dark tale from history. We'll see you then.